simply grace-filled today. Uh, I'd like to read something to you as we all have a checkered past. All of us have done things that we would even question at times. Would the Lord forgive me of my evils when I was younger, things that I have done? Is the grace sufficient? Is there power in the cross? And I was pondering that as we sang that song, and I opened to 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you want to look there later, and Paul's describing himself. He presided as a Pharisee over the stoning death of the first church martyr, Stephen. He had a really checkered past. He imprisoned uh, women and others who were, who were Christians. And he writes this about himself in verse 12 of chapter 1. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, into church service that is, in service of the cross and the gospel, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. This is the Apostle Paul describing himself. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief. God's grace is more than abundant to cover our sins. And I want everyone to know that today as we continue and as we worship and as we leave here especially that God's grace is more than abundant. More than abundant. Uh, message is going to be uh, topical today but uh, you might want to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I might have to ask for forgiveness before I even preach this one. I don't know. <laughs> oh. Titled this one, Assembly, Assembling with the Saints. Assembling with the Saints. If you were here with us the last two weeks, previous to this one, you should have come to the realization that Christians are not under the Mosaic Law. Uh, Thus, we are not obligated, we've learned, to keep uh, the Sabbath Law, the Sabbath Day Law, the Sabbath Day Command. The Sabbath rest, pictured In Israel, one day a week, for the New Testament Christian has become, according to Hebrews chapter 4, a complete rest in Christ Jesus. A complete rest from the law. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We talked about that last week. We observe the fourth commandment of God by permanently resting in Christ. Not just resting for a day, right? We rest in Christ. The Sabbath day, according to Colossians, was a shadow of the fullness that was going to be experienced in Christ. The complete rest from our works. If you weren't here with us last week, I do, I urge you to visit our website and and listen to that message uh, so to ensure we all remain in theological harmony. That we all understand where we're at here uh, because this important subject of the law versus grace is so essential to understand Christians are not under the law. It was merely a tutor to lead us to the grace found in Jesus Christ. We live under the new covenant, the covenant of God's grace. But the abundance of God's grace that we just read about uh, has caused sinful man again to make a grievous error. It's been suggested, more likely insisted, by many churches out there uh, 
who call themselves evangelical anyhow, uh, that since Christ died for all of our sins, since we are set free from the Mosaic law, it's said that there now remains nothing morally binding on the Christian. New Testament Christian doesn't have anything morally binding they have to abide by. That concept that I mentioned last week is known as antinomianism. Antinomianism, uh, it's a combination of two Greek words. That's where it originates, meaning against the law. Antinomian. And it takes our liberty in Christ, the freedom we have in Christ, uh, a step further. It insists we are free to live however we choose. As Christians kind of navigate the, the road of God's grace, if you were to consider religious legalism uh, a ditch on one side of the road to grace. Uh, antinomianism is the other ditch. All right, it, It's a byproduct of theological liberalism. And as legalism is exemplified by, by harsh extra-biblical rules, nowhere found in Scripture, hard standards that some churches expect of people, liberalism is the uh, absence of any standards. That there's nothing morally we, we should be judged by. It isn't even that antinomians would suggest that there's no such thing as sin. Most of them don't suggest that. What they suggest is our sin is inconsequential because of the grace and abundance of grace found in Jesus Christ. God's amazing grace. So their approach is, let's not even talk about sin. Let's not discuss it. Uh, instead, just emphasize love through acceptance. It's a very broad, broad uh, uh, movement today. Just love through acceptance. That's all that's required of us. It is a false belief system uh, that permits actually practicing homosexuals. Those who advocate for abortion and, and, and other types of activists to be, to be embraced by churches, actually. Some even become pastors with those viewpoints and preach another gospel. Unlike virtually every religious error, uh, antinomianism, it's not a new concept. It's not something we're just encountering today. Our Lord's brother Jude confronted it in his day, writing to Christians in the first century. The Lord's brother Jude writes, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. They deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Licentiousness is meaning you can just live however you want. Folks, that can't be reconciled to Scripture. That can't be reconciled to 1 Peter 4 or any multitude of scriptures that we can just live however we want. Equally as harmful as legalism, antinomianism, it's a grace killer. It abuses grace. Uh, can't be reconciled to scripture, as I said. Uh, certainly 1 Peter proves that. The New Testament is full of exhortations of obedience to the New Testament Christian. Can we agree on that? It's full of requirements all over the place. Um, and since we know now uh, from last week that we're not under the Sabbath law, 
we don't have to worship on Saturdays, one probably naturally asks then, if you've returned this week, well then, what expectations are there in Scripture? What requirements are made by God in regards to our religious assembling with one another? Right? I'm glad you asked. So we're going to go there. The Bible actually has much to say about this, folks. Much to say. And so this topical message is about what God expects of you. It's not merely what this church expects of you. It is what God's Word and what God Himself expects of you. And then I'll share how our local church fulfills this command found in Hebrews 10.25 to not forsake the assembling of yourself together. God establishes requirements. So I'll show you how we faithfully as Christians fulfill God's requirements. And if you're considering membership, we have a membership orientation where you can come in at the end of March and just learn about us. You don't have to become a member but you can learn more about our doctrine and our church. If you're considering membership, you'll want to know our expectations and God's expectations in regard to the corporate assembly for worship. Coming together. I've titled this message simply, Assembling with the Saints. Saints are those who are believers, if you didn't know that. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ are categorized as saints in Scripture. Folks, liberalism, that antinomianism, it's let people off way too easy. Way too easy. It's at the point today where where many people who call themselves Christian, I got the quotes going again, Ruth, quote-unquote Christians, it's gotten today where they'll only go to church when they feel like it. Or when they haven't scheduled some extracurricular activity that, that holds their interest. Uh, uh, the mindset has become that if you don't have anything else to do, nothing in your schedule, or if you can't find something else interesting to do to pass your time, you know, well, maybe I should make a showing at church, you know, every third or fourth Sunday. When it, whenever it doesn't inconvenience my weekend. Tell you folks, people like to pass around loosely the term heresy. That's a heresy right there. That goes completely against Scripture. That somehow assembling with God's, God's chosen people, His saints, His, His holy ones, His church, is the lowest scheduling priority each week rather than the highest. Folks, broad evidence in Scripture and an exhortation in Hebrews 10.24 strongly emphasizes the importance of, the primacy of assembling with God's people when it says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's helpful that on a couple occasions in the last couple months, I've mentioned the the background of Hebrews, the the overarching theme of Hebrews. It was written to ethnic Jews who were were tempted to abandon Christ and, and go back to their Judaism because it seemed easier. The persecution had gotten so hard that they're like, you know, 
why do we have to stand as Christians? Can't we just go back to the temple sacrifices and, and doing what we were doing as Hebrews? We didn't, we didn't suffer near as much for that as we are here being Christians. Those folks that the writer of Hebrews uh, sent that letter to, they, they were suffering intense persecution. But it says, not yet to the point of shedding blood. So they had not yet shed blood uh, in a mortal way. Uh, Hebrews 12.4, you can find that. But the persecution was severe enough. The church was being persecuted enough where some had forsaken the assembling of the saints. For, uh, the identifying with other Christians had become hazardous to their health. You know what I mean? So apparently, some were using physical persecution as a reason to skip church. Follow me? So, so think about that just for a minute. Biblically, physical persecution is not an excuse for skipping church. You'll find this ring true around the world today, folks. Around the world today in closed countries where the persecuted and underground church meets for prayer and mutual encouragement and edification and for evangelism and for preaching of the word underground because they're threatened with seizure of property. Some even martyrdom. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in this same context that, that I just read from, exhorts that assembly of God's people, the church, to remember, he says in verse 32, remember the former days, when after being enlightened, meaning with the gospel, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners, that is, prisoners who were put in jail for being a Christian. Not just prisoners in general. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The writer says, there is a reward ahead. You're looking toward a better country, inheriting a better land uh, with God Himself. Commanding the Hebrews to not forsake the assembly, the, the writer urges them, remember your former days. Reflect back on the earlier days when you were willing to suffer. That you endured imprisonment. That you visited those saints who were in prison, and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, enduring hostility, hostility that was imposed specifically because they're willing to be identified with God's people. The writer suggests that was the right attitude. Think back on that before, before you started forsaking the assembly. Return. Tell you folks, churches suffering across the globe can identify with that. Unfortunately, the feeble American church can't. A couple of years ago, I shared a story with this church, maybe three years ago now. I'm going to share it again just because just there's some new folks here, the benefit of all of us. In my previous church, our home group hosted uh, 
um, um, one of our missionaries to India named Babu George. Remember this story, folks? And Babu had returned from India on furlough. He was a naturalized citizen in America who, who got saved and then went on and, and went to Dallas Seminary. And, and then he returned to India as a missionary out of Denton Bible Church. And, and Babu was telling our group, we got to know him fairly well, he was telling our home group about Christians he encountered in India. They were driven from their, their homes and far away from their city by hostile Hindus driven out of the city and out of their homes. They had had their possessions pilfered, and they were living in makeshift tents as Babu George encountered their camp as he came across their path. But that, that church remained together. The Christians were together. And Babu, he, he had no real significant resources in order to change their, their financial situation, or he wasn't carrying a whole bunch of relief supplies on his back. He was quite limited to what he could offer them, but he inquired to, into what the future held for you people. What does the future hold for your church? And one of the leaders of that church said that the city leaders had told them that, that we could return to our homes and rejoin that community if we agreed to disband our church and deny Christ. True story, folks. And Babu asked that leader then what they had decided as a church to do, many of them already lacking supplies, children lacking a full stomach. And that man replied, we will not deny Jesus. We will stay here together and die. At the time that Babu returned to the States then, and, and uh, was updating with us. He was un- uncertain of what had happened to him at that point. He really didn't know. It's not like they're carrying cell phones all the time back in that day over in remote India. But folks, the early church endured persecution. The modern church is enduring persecution. And Scripture insess- insists that even physical oppression, the-, the danger of martyrdom, the loss of possessions, it's not a legitimate excuse to skip church. If forsaking the assembly of the saints in our culture today that, that's not physically threatened. Epidemic. Epidemic. People will basically skip church for any reason at all. They'll invent reasons. They'll create scheduling conflicts because apparently things like golf are so much more important than coming together with the saints and worshiping Jesus Christ. That's just the, the, the world that we live in. The world that we live in, folks. The nation that we live in. The circumstances this church in America is in. And uh, I expect right now, some of you are like, man, what happened since last Sunday? What's changed since last week? Last Sunday we were liberated from the Sabbath law and, and by God's amazing grace. Best news we ever got. We don't have to observe the Sabbath day anymore. We're not under the law. Uh, football, football tailgating. Everybody can just skip. We'll just get there to the stadium early, right? And, and man, this is great stuff. We don't have to prioritize Christ's church. We don't have to serve His church. We don't have to encourage the brethren who are in church. Don't have to give our money to church. Nothing. We don't even have to show up. What just happened? What is that thinking? 
That thinking just drove off into the ditch of antinomianism. Actually, it went off the cliff. They think there's, there's nothing to be expected of a Christian. That just can't be reconciled to Scripture. That person has insisted that God doesn't have any expectations. Apparently, he has regenerated your heart, called you to faith in Jesus Christ, gifted you with the Holy Spirit. Just so you can sit out the game on the sidelines. That's not biblical Christianity. People who believe that. Um, Being set free from the law doesn't mean that we disregard or disobey Scripture. Being liberated from the law means... We recognize we don't earn our salvation through works and through the law. That's what being liberated from the law uh, teaches us. But we also acknowledge that obedience to God is a necessary result of salvation. It's necessary. But obedience for the regenerating Christian, this is the good part, it isn't even striving. It isn't even slaving to keep a bunch of rules that get made up. That's not what the life of the Christian is. Obedience to God, it's, it's the joyful fruit of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. It's a joy to do what God tells us to do. It's not harsh. His commandments are not burdensome, right? It's a joy to serve God and obey God. Uh, we yearn in our spirits to fellowship with God and with God's people and to worship Christ with God's people. Christians don't don't only love God. Christians love God's people. Christians love His body. Christians love the church. They love the church. The brethren. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother. You know, in the theology of the Apostle John who wrote that letter, uh, the brother isn't your sibling. I think you probably caught on to that. The brother also isn't just anyone passing by on the street. In his first epistle, John establishes actually a dichotomy between the world and those who are chosen by God. There's a distinction between the two, those who are of the world and those who are born again of God. We who are Christians are not of the world. We're not of the world. We are chosen of the Father who is in heaven. And John says in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. That's how we know that we've been born again. We've passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. His church. That, that, that's how we know. It, it's not how much you have up here. It's the regenerated heart you have in here. The love for God's people. Love for one another. Folks, just take a minute here. Take a minute and, and look back and forth down your aisle. 
And look one another in the eyes when you look. Look in the eyes. These are people. We are all precious. We're one with Christ and we're one with one another. And we're to love one another. We're part of his body. We've been baptized into his body. Um, We attend church as Christians, not because a law makes us, although scripture does command us. We attend church regularly and serve the brethren because we love God and we love his people. It's, It's supernatural in us. So, so attending church isn't all of, at all about, you know, our preferences and, and what I want and, and what I want to receive. Church is about worshiping God and, and serving the ones that He loves, sitting right next to you, your brother and sister. It's one of the reasons that Jesus demonstrated washing feet, serving those whom He loved. Folks, if, if that suggestion chafes you, it's probably a spiritual problem. It shouldn't chafe you. It should just naturally affirm in your heart what you already know. And it provides each of us an opportunity to correct ourselves. And look at ourselves and ask ourselves, do we really love? Do we really love? Because a seeker model of church, it's taught taught people that Christianity isn't about uh, loving everybody else and sacrificing for everybody else. It's about you. People are being told all over the place, some probably Christians, a lot of them probably not, they're being told Christianity is all about you. The church exists to serve you. It's modern philosophy. And if you aren't, if you aren't getting the music selection that, that you like or the atmosphere that makes you feel special about yourself or you're not getting the preaching that you think uh, you enjoy, uh, we've got something on the other side of town that you should come to. Better coffee selection. The church is here to serve you. That's not the picture in Scripture. And people church hop, church hop and church shop, excuse me, indefinitely. And they never settle down. Never get to know anyone. Not with intimacy. Never learn to really love, bond, uh, serve the brethren. For that reason, they never come to look anything like Jesus Christ. Who did not come to be served, but to serve. And he said, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. That's Matthew chapter 20 if you want to look there later. We'll all be taking applications for a foot washer at the door when, in the vestibule when we leave. It's serious stuff, folks. Very serious stuff. You, you can't achieve the expectations of a Christian laid out in Scripture. You, you can't mature in Christ and become a reflection of Him if you don't become a devoted servant of Christ's church. You can't look like him. The directives in Scripture, they're, they're almost always focused at specific local churches. This is another thing that get, gets mixed up with people. Um, most of the time in Scripture, whether you look at the seven churches in 
Revelation or the church in Corinth or uh, uh, other regions, typically the letters are addressed to specific churches with identifiable members by name. Like the end up, uh, the letter to the Romans at the end, all those names that Paul is greeting, people that they knew were part of that church who had identified themselves with the assembling of that saints, of those saints. You don't just generally serve a lot of people running around out there, yo, I love Jesus and I just serve Jesus. They've never gone to church. Well, I'm a, I'm a member of the universal church. Boy, you don't hear much about that in Scripture. There's a couple little places. Scripture addresses local congregations, gives instruction to local congregations identifiable by name. The commands to serve one another and to love the brethren, they're not general in nature. They're not general. Corinth was one church, one church body with many individual members, right? That's 1 Corinthians 12, 12. So you can't tell me that the concept of membership of a local body doesn't exist in the Bible. That's scripturally ignorant, folks. It very much does occur in the Bible, repeatedly in the Bible. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 indicates, that same chapter, every true Christian who is regenerated by God Sir is uh, gifted as to serve the local church. You're given a spiritual gift to serve the brethren. Romans 12 says the same thing. If you go to look there, and our scripture reading from 1 Peter 4, verse 8, told us earlier, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift, the spiritual gifted by God, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How could it be any clearer? How do you obey that? How do you express your love towards others, towards the brethren, living as an antinomian? You can't. We can't. It's a great question, folks, for the movie theater churches out there. You know, you grab your ticket and you get your popcorn and you go in where the lights are down low. Can't make anybody out. You get some light movie screen time, right? And then when it's all over, you exit out the side door. Think about it when you've gone to movies. You've been over to the Cinemax or whatever recently and you go in. And you watch a good show and you have your pop and your popcorn. When you walk out the side door, do you really care at all about the person who was sitting next to you? No. Not really, do you? Not really. Church is not a movie theater. It's God's assembly of his precious ones. We assemble as Christians to serve God and to love one another. You might say, you know, I don't know how to serve. I I don't know how I'm gifted. I'm not sure with any of that. Uh, Those answers come through service. As you serve, they manifest themselves. We we get to see your spiritual giftedness and it becomes apparent to everybody else in the the body. They can see how you're gifted. The most common spiritual gift is, is just service. Serving with joy. Doing menial tasks or repetitive tasks with joy. That's the gift of service gift of serving one another. Some, some people think that because I can't play an instrument real well or the piano or I can't preach or I'm not really good with any of that, 
that they're not important to the body. They're, they're like that ear in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 6, who says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body. But the Apostle Paul actually says to the ear, it's not for this reason that you're any less a part of the body. Everyone's an important member of the body. No type of spiritual service or sacrifice is any more important or any less important than any other. We are all part of the same body. Some think the church is almost exclusively about teaching. Folks, that's a misnomer. It's not primarily about teaching. It is about teaching, but not exclusively in any way. Uh, we've, we've had a guy state a couple years ago, I remember an occurrence, a visitor said, I've got the gift of teaching, I want to teach, can I teach? My response is, I don't even know you. I don't know what you believe. I don't know where you came from. You know, stick around. We'd like to get to know you. You know, see if you agree with our doctrinal statement and our church membership covenant. Uh, covenant. Over time, the church will recognize whether you have the gift of teaching, right? The body affirms how people are gifted. They see it in others over time. Um, then, then the same fella, he wouldn't show up but once or twice a month. And I'm like, you can't teach. You can't even obey the command to not forsake the assembly of the saints. Which is clear in Scripture. Unfortunately, by forsaking the assembly of the saints, though, people are teaching. One man in particular had a teenage boy who learned from dad's example that church attendance wasn't important. Which means basically that God's word which commands church attendance also isn't important. It minimizes what God says. And uh, it's not a priority anyhow. And as as a family perpetually wanders from church to church perpetually, you've got to remember we've all been in seasons. I don't know what season you're in in your life. But as uh, a family perpetually wanders from church to church, someday they're going to lament because they're going to ask, why doesn't my child, after my child left the home, why don't they go to church? It's often because they're taught by example. Church wasn't important. The example of being a serving member of, body, of the, uh, Christ's body wasn't important. I, went to, I gave away a gospel track this morning to a young girl at the gas station when I was getting my carbonated beverage. And I shared with her a ticket to heaven, and she's like, yeah. She goes, I, I, I went to church growing up. I don't go anymore. I'm not interested. So I wonder. I didn't have time to sit there and talk with her, but I wonder, what was modeled for her about the love of church and the reason for attending church? Every Christian needs to be a faithful, contributing member of a local church as God has gifted them. It doesn't have to be this church doesn't have to be this church. I'm sure some of you are here today legitimately trying to find a church home. I understand that. You're shopping around a little bit. There, there's a season for that. 
You need to find out what you're getting into. So once you're into it, you can commit wholeheartedly. But eventually you need to choose a church home and become devoted servants of the church. That phase has to come too. Scripture doesn't permit Christians to wander uh, perpetually or to forsake the assembly indefinitely. Endlessly, folks, endlessly hopping church to church, that's a sign of spiritual immaturity. Never plugging in and never serving. Very spiritually immature. If, If you don't fit here over time and you decide you don't fit here, by all means, find a place you do. Find a place you love. Pour yourself out in serving Christ when you find that place. If you don't like our music, you don't like my preaching, I accept that. I accept that. Not everybody's drawn by the same types of music and personalities. Find a place that you do. Serve Christ. Folks, I I think the perfect church is it's just down a couple miles. Maybe it's that way. I don't remember. It's, it's out there. It's out there. But you can't come to church Sunday after Sunday resentful. You can't do that. You can't leave here Sunday after Sunday resentful. Um, do you under, anybody have any idea how damaging that is to your children? Think about that just for a second. Grumbling every week due to one song or perhaps disagreed with a peripheral application one of the pastors gave someplace about a non-essential doctrine somehow. And your kids are in the back seat and they're listening to you as on the way home as you're discrediting the local pastor and speaking badly or the person who was teaching the class. Then you wonder why your kids walk away from Christ once they hit college age. Because you've been teaching them. You've been teaching them every week that they can't trust what's being taught from the Word of God and from the pulpit, so they don't even want it anymore. Dangerous. Very dangerous, folks. Find a place that you love. Find a place you can affirm. Find a place to serve. Don't do that to your children. We aren't perfect, but if you find us suitable, if you do, if God is leading you to put down roots here, by all means, folks, be faithful. Be faithful. Be an encouragement. Love the brethren. Serve the body with joy. Serve with joy. How refreshing, folks, are the people who serve with joy. Pastor Weiler and myself, we see someone serving with joy. Well, we can be giddy all week. Just seeing how they gave up of their time or of themselves to do something that Nobody else even knew was needed to be done. Folks, I tell you, a lot of you folks, are, you're our joy. You are our joy. We love you. You are an encouragement to all of us here. All of us together. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We're here to stimulate one another to love, to good deeds. That's why we come. And then he says, Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. We're here to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to encourage one another all the more as the day is drawing near. Um, You ask, can I encourage anyone? If you have the Spirit of God in you, you're equipped. 
You're equipped to do that. You can get to know one another. You can love one another. You can encourage one another. You can serve one another. Scripturally, you have to. As a Christian, you have to. You don't have any choice. As Alistair Begg tells his church all the time, we exist to edify and multiply. To edify one another and multiply the people brought into God's kingdom. Have to be in church to do that. One other thing before we go. Some have come to believe that the only reason to attend church is to hear teaching. Learn more about the Bible. They rationalize that if they can hear better preaching on the radio, that now they've fulfilled their requirement to go to church. They no longer have to go to a local church. Um, They can merely learn from better teaching from John MacArthur, right? Alistair Begg on the radio. If church was only about learning, which is not, but if it were, I can see someone trying to argue that. You could learn just by listening on your phone because there's an app for that, right? Christianity isn't an app. Teaching is only part of it. Our primary purpose for assembling with the saints is to worship God, to love one another, and to encourage one another all the more as the day draws near. That's why we're here. It's love, a sincere love of the brethren. Can't do that sitting in your living room. Can't learn to to serve. Can't learn to deny self for the sake of others. Can't learn to love the unlovely. That's what God did when he saved us. We were unlovely, and he saved us anyhow. Uh, He didn't count our faults against us, so we are to do the same. We are to assemble to worship with people who don't behave like us, don't look like us, might not even share the same interests as us. We're here to get to love people, even tolerate others with love. That's when we begin to resemble him and look like Christ who first loved us. I uh, was watching Little House on the Prairie. Rita and I are all into that now. We got the greatest gift for Christmas. I've got the best associate pastor and his wife. They gave us the whole nine seasons of Little House on the Prairie. It, best gift, I, I'm serious, best gift, gift I've ever gotten at Christmas. And... Uh, 198 DVDs, I think it is. Um, no, uh, videos on 100 DVDs or something. Great stuff. So I'm, I'm watching this, this last week, and they're going to church, you know, in, in Walnut Grove, and there becomes a conflict in the church. And you know what it's over? It's over a church bell. And... and, and the, the, uh, the people who own the store, the Olsons, they wanted to pay for the church bell, but they had to have a plaque. And other people who had spent money in their sweat and tears to build the church said, we don't want any plaque. We didn't ask for any plaque. So the church split half one way, half the other, and everybody's angry at one another. Charles Ingalls says, don't worry, honey. We can just have church at home. Just us with the family at home. No, that's called a family devotional, folks. You can't have church alone at home. You can't experience church and the love of Christ and the sacrifice for the brethren alone at home. Rita says, man, I just love Charles Ingalls. 
He is so nice. I said, yeah, he's got bad theology. What else? Oh, yeah. Buckle up for landing here. We'll make this quick. Last week I said I would comment on the Lord's Day. Comment on the Lord's Day. In Scripture, Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. After his resurrection, every time he appeared to the disciples, and there is a day attached to that appearance, it is the first day of the week. In Acts 20, verse 7, when Paul's teaching in Troas, um, we see that the church gathered on the first day of the week. Probably in the evening, actually. Early Christians probably had to work on that first day of the week. And they would gather in the evening. That's probably the reason they started later. Paul preached all the way into the night, into the next morning. But it was on the first day of the week. The, the Corinthian church assembled, 1 Corinthians 16.2, on the first day of the week. It is a day uh, the Apostle John referred to as the Lord's Day. Historically, church, the church has always, since its inception, historically, generally met on the first day of the week. That's, it's partly to distinguish itself from the Jewish Sabbath, partly to uh, perpetually commemorate the Lord's resurrection through the breaking of bread on the first day of the week. Uh, it's a scriptural pattern. It's not a scriptural requirement. In the Western world, Saturday and Sunday, as we know, they're broadly the weekend. That's the weekend time. Schools, banks, businesses keep people pretty busy during the week. So Saturday and Sunday become the most logical. We know neither is a Sabbath day from last week. Um, Port St. Lucie Bible Church observes the Lord's Day. It is a pattern. It is a tradition in Scripture that we observe. It is our preferred day of worship. For Gerald and I, many others here I know as well, it becomes a day of labor for the Lord. A day of labor in the Lord. It's, it's not a day of rest. I'm usually up between 5 and 6 a.m. getting going. I'm sure Gerald is too. Many others of you are working all day, visiting people after church, doing visitation, serving one another. It's not a day off. As we learned last week in Genesis, everyone needs a day off. Rita and I try to take Saturday. We try to have that as our day of rest, relaxation, and recreation. I think I mowed yesterday. Sunday is the Lord's Day. It is a day set apart in our hearts for the Lord. So this church worships on Sundays. If you perhaps desire to become a part of this church ongoing, you need to be here most Sundays. Really do. You have to be here on Sundays. We don't hound people. We don't keep attendance records. We, we are not that type of church. We are not a legalistic church. But we will let you know, as we did today, what the Lord expects of you, not what we alone expect of you. Um, everyone vacations now and then. Everybody has special events. There's something that interferes with church attendance. You need to make a change, folks need to make a change. If it's that late night movie marathon that you do every Saturday night until 3 a.m., you might need to move it to Friday. I got a quote here from a famous theologian. Whether or not you are present on Sunday is usually determined by your behavior on Saturday night. Gerald Weiler. Whether or not you are present on Sunday is usually determined by your behavior on Saturday night. That's a good one, Gerald. 
Your work schedule might require you. I was an airline worker. We got Eric Yurkus. He, he's a corrections officer. He can only get there every, here every other week. There are things that interfere. Being a civil servant and providing you for your family is important. You guys get it. You guys get it. You inherently knew it in your heart before we even started today. Love the brethren. Love the brethren. There will be a great reward at the judgment seat someday. That's a different sermon. Let's pray.